Thinking about you, Robbie Flower, and going to the footy late in your career with Paul Kelly, and seeing you get caught with the ball. Robbie Flower never got caught with the ball. And Paul Kelly writing a piece on mortality and how the end comes to us all. Thinking about you, Jimmy, running across the mark in that game and the morgue-like silence that followed Buckenara's goal that gave Hawthorne victory after Melbourne had led most of the day. Thinking how you told me you fled to Paris and on the metro a man leant forward and said, aren't you the bloke who ran across the mark in the preliminary final? And you knew you could never escape it. You'd have to go back. And you'd have to do better than you'd ever dreamed of doing to atone for your error. Four years later, you won the Brownlow. You told me you won the Brownlow because you ran across the mark. That's how your mind worked, Jimmy. Obstacle equals opportunity. Thinking about you, Jimmy, when you were dying. Going to you and the Moo and the Warpry tribal lands five hours northwest of Alice Springs. Because Liam Jarrah came from you and the Moo and as club president, you told the Melbourne players you want to see the place every one of them was from. Everyone knew you were dying. The Warpry were in awe of your act, and I saw how white fellas can pass into the dreaming of this land. That's the voice of Martin Flanagan with his Thinking About Demons piece from 2018. It's going to be our feature speech for this episode. Martin's pretty much the poet laureate of footy here in Australia. I love him. I love footy and I love grand final week. And in fact, this week I'd usually be MC at quite a few breakfasts and lunches and other footy functions. Quite a few of them are at the MCG in the function rooms there. And I always start with the same joke, which goes, when I was growing up, I prayed to God every night that I would one day play on the MCG in September But unfortunately, God misheard me and thought I said play MC at the G in September. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Of course, I won't be doing any speaking gigs this year, and that has been a bit of a problem on the business front. If you want to support me in COVID times, you can either buy my footy book, 1989, The Great Grand Final, which I have a box of, and you can email me, tony at tonywilson.com.au. I'll send you a signed copy saying who paid the price for the book. Or you can become a patron for this podcast. You can go to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash speakola, and there is a $3 tier, an $8 tier, and a $20 tier. And that contribution goes towards making this project sustainable. I do all the producing, all the editing, all the interviewing. It is just me. So if you love the show, you can show some love by becoming a patron. There's also a straight out donation option as well and we've had many generous donors. That's at speakola.com forward slash donate. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get to the promised land! Speak over. Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the government yet. Speak over with Tony Wilson. 
Hello and welcome to the Speakola podcast. It's a grand final footy Speakola podcast. We have quite a few international listeners to this show. And for you, well, it's sit back and enjoy a very Australian ride or skip this one because you're just not interested in Ivor Warren Smith and his two Brownlows in the late 20s for the Melbourne Demons. But what, what I will say is that if you're uninitiated to football, there's no better person to conduct the initiation than Martin Flanagan, who's my special guest today. He is so eloquent. He's a natural storyteller, a yarner, and I just loved this interview conducted between me in lockdown in Melbourne and Martin over in Launceston just before both of our worlds shook in Australia's biggest earthquake for a while. The earth will be shaking on Saturday in the grand final. The two teams that have made it are the Western Bulldogs and Melbourne. And Martin is the perfect person to talk about this game because he has a foot in both camps. He's written books about the Western Bulldogs, including A Wink from the Universe and also Southern Skies Western Oval, which was his year embedded at the Footscray Football Club. And then he followed up by spending a couple of years embedded at Melbourne Football Club as well. So he has a love and passion for both clubs and is truly torn as to where his allegiances will be lying on Saturday. We'll get to Martin in a moment, but I do want to do a shout out to our new Speakola sponsor, and that is the Podcast Reader. The Podcast Reader is a print magazine. It's got a bit of a New Yorker look, and it celebrates the long-form podcast Smart things being said by some of the world's most intelligent people and an opportunity to do that immersive reading thing that maybe listening to a podcast doesn't enable. So if you're intellectually curious and you want to be pointed towards great podcasts, subscribe to the podcast reader. You can do that at podread.org. You can also go to their Twitter handle, which is at podreadmag, and you can take up a special Speakola offer. Go to podread.org forward slash Speakola, and you can get three months free of the PDF edition of the magazine if you enter the code Speakola. It's time to play the interview with Martin Flanagan. It's worth mentioning that the Thinking About You Melbourne monologue that he delivered on SEN in 2018 began with a reference to Tom Wills, who's regarded as the father of Australian rules football, or one of them. Martin Flanagan wrote a book about Tom Wills. It was called The Call. Well, Tom Wills has been in the news over the last fortnight with some Disturbing stories about participation in massacres of Indigenous people, and we're not going to talk about that. This is going to be a grand final week type chat, and as Martin says in this interview, he really wants to write a Tom Wills piece that is carefully considered, and he doesn't want to shoot off on the topic right now, unscripted with me. So, Tom Wills, we acknowledge what's going on in the media but we won't be talking about it in this interview. Here's Martin. Well, apart from being a podcast host, I am also a sports writer, and any sports writer in Australia is pretty thrilled when he gets to speak to the person I regard as the sports writer in Australia. His name is Martin Flanagan. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Martin. My pleasure, mate. After a build-up like that, how could I refuse? <laughs> well, 
one reason to get you on is I feel like with a grand final coming up on Saturday between the Western Bulldogs and the Melbourne Demons, there's probably no man in Australia who more has a foot in both camps. Can you can you explain the relationship with them? Yeah. So in 1993, I was actually um, trying to write a novel based on two footballers, one Aboriginal one non-Aboriginal, and Peter Schwab was my model for one and Chris Lewis was the other. And I went to Hobart and visited Brent Croswell, who casually went into his bedroom and came out with three handwritten pages on a notebook, which he had started a novel about football, and he read them, and I just thought, I just can't compete with that. That's, that's just too good. And so I came back to Melbourne at a loss, and I got rung by Terry Wheeler, who was the coach of the Bulldogs. And he said, we're going to win the premiership this year. I want you to come out and record it for me. And I didn't think they would win the premiership, but I thought this could be my chance to learn more about the game, and then I can write my novel. So I went out and spent a year with the Dogs, and um, it had a huge impact on me. It changed the way I saw the game. Before... That year, I took the game for granted. Uh, it never occurred to me that it might die or that we might lose it. But after getting out there, getting into the history of the western suburbs, understanding the factors that led to the dogs nearly going under, I suddenly realised the game was culturally vulnerable. So that was 1993, and, um, and of course, we're now starting to see all that come to fruition uh, particularly down here in Tasmania where the game is is under threat. So I did write that book about a year with the dogs and, of course, they didn't win it. I, they didn't make the finals. So and that one was called Western Skies. Uh, what was it called? <laughs> <laughs> Good guess. Good guess. It was called Southern Sky Western Oval. And I, I, I would go around to speak and people would get up and say, you know, Western Sky, Southern Oval, Green Oval, Eastern Sky, um, Tim Whitten said to me once, it doesn't matter what you call your books, just make sure they can pronounce them. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I wrote that book and, and that had two big consequences. One was that in that 1993 Bulldog team was Luke Beveridge and he subsequently asked me to write the book on the 2016 Grand Final, uh, my book, A Wink from the Universe. But the other consequence was that one person who admired the book was a guy called Cameron Schwab, and he became CEO when Jimmy Stein saved the club in the early 2000s. And he rang me and he said, I want you to come to Melbourne and, and write that book for Melbourne. And by that stage, I had learnt what I'm sure you know, Tony, as a sports writer, writing a book about a losing team is really hard because the, the momentum keeps dying. And you have to find something else to sustain the book. It's really hard work. I, so I, I could see the sort of year Melbourne were going to have. So <laughs> I said, no, I won't do that. But if you let me inside your club, I'll write articles about the people I met who, who interest me and things that strike me as interesting. So I did. I spent several years with Melbourne and we, we, we used the phrase embedded. I always expected someone to... Uh, to attack me for this, this idea that a journalist in football couldn't be embedded. But my answer would have been, 
why are you not worried about the fact that the Americans are, are invading Iraq and the only journalists allowed in are embedded journalists? That doesn't seem to be a problem for anyone. Footy's more serious than war, isn't it, Martin? I suppose that's what we're getting towards, mate. So having written two books on the dogs and met so many great people around that club and, you know, the, the 2016 premiership, I think, was my happiest day in footy, the AFL footy, and writing that book was, was a great joy. And, but I have enormous feeling for the Ds. And, and part of it is, uh, you know, I was a Tasmanian boy, went to Melbourne, didn't really know the city and, and really fell in love with Melbourne. I, I, I think it's a great city and, you know, it's got a heart and it's got a mind and as a writer you can appeal to it and if you do that, you're respected. And, and Melbourne Football Club is such a large part of that story. Melbourne Football Club's been part of Melbourne since the colony was called Victoria, it's only something like eight years that Melbourne Football Club's not part of the story. And then, you know, they're this grand, eccentric sporting institution that has few equals anywhere in the world. And, of course, it's had, it's had such a, an array, a range of amazing characters through it. So, and for some reason, a lot of the people I know are Melbourne supporters and they are something special to be around because... Uh, you know, their history is one of sort of tragic ineptitude, but they never lose their optimism. They never lose their faith. And as David Bridey says, you know, when we do win, it's brilliant. And it is. So, yeah, I'm, I'm what the American Indians call two souls for this match. I, I don't have one soul, I have two. And one's with one camp, one's with the other. To the extent that I don't even think I want to watch it. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'll make myself. Yeah, well... Martin, you've been a great supporter of Speakola and you provided us with many speeches over the first six years of our existence and they're some of my favourites. But the one we're going to focus on today is a monologue that you wrote in the, I think it was in the in the days before the preliminary final, the disastrous preliminary final that Melbourne played in Perth in 2018. And even bringing up this piece of writing might be painful for Melbourne supporters because it went viral, it was much loved by everyone and then they put in one of the worst performances <laughs> they've ever put out, out there. Yeah. But uh, we're going to talk about it anyway and we're going to play it as well. Yeah. Thinking about you, Ron Barassi is what I call it, um, but it's thinking about a lot of people at the Melbourne Football Club and it really is informed, I guess, by those times that you spent there, those years you spent there made you feel part of the fabric of the place. Yeah, and it's also that thing, I mean, it's about Melbourne and it's about, you know, and as you and I have discussed, the original version starts with Tom Wills. I'm not going to play that today, or we're not, because, um, you know, that at the moment is a highly delicate and sensitive subject and I'm going to write something about that for the age and I don't want to preempt what I'm going to say or summarise what I'm going to say because it it has to be a really carefully considered thing that I write. But it goes, you know, Melbourne Footy Club, it, it had so many great characters. And when I was there, although they weren't winning games, they, they had three legends. Jimmy Steins, and, and it's just so typical of Melbourne that um, a bloke whose uncle fought with Michael Collins, who was, I think, the first person the British government ever labelled a terrorist, that... He's the guy who saves the establishment club. Jimmy's the guy. So Jimmy's a legend. I reckon, honestly, think Liam Jarrah uh, is one of the best sports stories by world standards. 
that I ever got close to. And then there was the doorman, Arthur Wilkinson. He was this beautiful old man. He'd come to the club with Checker Hughes. As a boy, I think he, at the age of 13, he went out back on a horse with one suit of clothes and he always carried a poultry book. He and I just got on. We just got on really well. And he, he paid me the enormous compliment of asking to see me when he was dying. And uh, I loved him. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so they're that, that, that people that will always be with me, yeah. Do you remember writing the piece and, and, and what your thoughts were and what motivated you to do it? Was, it? was it actually a prescribed assignment or was it one that you just decided you had to do? Uh, mate, I think it was one of those times when my tongue got the better of me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I felt the wave coming, mate. I'm a surfer on the, on the sea of language. I, I, I felt the wave coming and thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ride this. And uh, I just went with it and, yeah, yeah. Um, it was just fun, really. They ended up playing out the, the audio that I'm going to play at the end was on SEN. So Andy Marr somehow got hold of it. Was was that because he read the piece and then got you to read it out or, or did you send in an audio version to SEN? Well, Bob Murphy's a good friend of mine. I don't remember, but I reckon I would have rung him and said, I've, I've written this thing. Do you want me to come in and read it? I think I'd done something like it for him before. I'd done a couple for him. I do like reading my stuff. Uh, you know, the Irish tradition is an oral tradition. You know, I like telling stories. You know, I like, I like, I like the power of the voice. I think that's how how it came about. Yeah. And if we leave aside Tom Wills, the next person who's yeah. the, the next person that's mentioned in the monologue is Ivor Warren Smith. And you said your grandfather used to rave about him. Yeah. Well, I never met my grandfather. And um, he couldn't write more than his name. And he was from around the northwest of Tasmania. And the nearest big town to him was Latrobe. And he got, he sort of followed Latrobe. And, and he had this story that came to me through my father. Warren Smith's been away in World War I. I think he was at Gallipoli. And I think he lost two brothers on the Western Front. And he's a, he's a very considerable character, Warren Smith. And he's come to Tasmania. He's been given a soldier settlement plot near La Trobe. And one day he went to the cattle sales and the boys were having a kick and he had a kick with them. And they talked him into coming down and playing for, um, for La Trobe. He subsequently captained the Northwest Football Union against the Hobart-based TFL. And um, I'm from the north, and we hated the south. And the north usually lost. Um, the two northern associations usually lost to the south. Uh, but this was their big chance. Warren Smith captained them. And, and my grandfather caught the train and went to Hobart for the only time in his life to see Ivor Warren Smith lead the union. And, and the story in my family was that Warren Smith was injured early in the union lost, and two years ago... I saw a local newspaper report which claimed the union won. <laughs> so Controversy. <laughs> you can pick and choose on that one which version of the story you want. But then Warren Smith goes back to Melbourne, plays with Melbourne, wins two Brownlow medals, but he's also integral to that period of success Melbourne has under Norm Smith. He's their chief of star, uh, um, chairman of selectors. And, and, and when Warren Smith goes, that's when the whole thing blows up and... Um, Norm Smith leaves in a manner 
not unlike Clarko's departure from Hawthorne. Well, that's the next verse of the of the monologue as well. It's dedicated to Ron Barassi and yeah. him living with Norm Smith. Actually, actually yeah. I got to visit the front of the house that they stayed in. It was it's in Westgarth, I think. Yeah, yeah. And Norm Smith's house, yeah. and and I looked back, and that garage at the back was you know Barassi's uh, little yeah. outpost that he was living in in his late teens, and it was a it was a bit exciting. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's obviously a part of legend that that Barassi has that closeness with Norm Smith. Yeah, well, I'm doing this series of on Melbourne supporters for the age because Melbourne supporters are so. Uh, I think they're the most stereotyped supporters in it. You know, the going to the snow and well done number nine when David Leach was playing, all that sort of stuff. But the Melbourne supporters on are fanatics, uh, and anyway, down here in Tassie, my brother's a doctor, and he met this old guy, former lion tamer. And he's the only Melbourne supporter I've ever met who's seen him won a premiership, and he's 90. Yeah. And um, he told me this story. He was at – he always used to sit by the race, and he was watching Melbourne thirds. And this team runs out, and there's a 16-year-old kid in it, and the black beside him says, that boy's going to be a champion. I knew his father, and it's Ron Barassi. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and and part of – of VFL and AFL folklore that that Ron Barassi lost his father at yeah. to Brook and yeah. and you know created some of the steel that made yeah. him such a such a character in in footy. I interviewed yeah. uh, I interviewed Ron Barassi for a film we were making called The Galars because Ron Barassi was the coach of yeah. the 1967 yeah. Tour of Ireland. Yeah. And he was a re- he was a real believer in that in that international yeah. concept of Aussie rules, yeah. uh, and uh, he really drove the, drove the players on that on that trip. Yeah. And John Nichols tells stories of. Ron Barassi not letting them walk through London because he, he didn't want them to get leg weary, you know, sort of fanatical as though they were playing in a grand final. That's how seriously they were taking these practice games in London. And and Ron Barassi gave that interview to, with us under an enormous painting of a woman's vagina, sort of a bush. It's, it's the modern art of the Barassi ha- household. I have to say that was just a really surprising Image. <laughs> I was having a talk with Ron Barassi during that time when I was doing the stories in the early 2000s, and he said to me uh, he had he still has a ringing nerve in his lip from where Murray Wiedemann hit him during the 1958 grand final. <laughs> We're having this conversation in something like 2008. 50 years later, his lip is still ringing. <laughs> yeah, he was. he's, he's amazing. And, and it, it is sad that he won't be over there in Perth, but I'm sure the thoughts of, of the entire footy world are with him wherever he is. Yeah. And if, if we continue on the list here, I've yeah. got of verse by verse. Yeah. Um, Brian Dixon gets a mention, talking about the Galahs and international yeah. rules football. Brian Dixon was there champion he's a really interesting character brian dixon he's um he plays in at least three maybe more premierships with melbourne five he plays in the five yeah then becomes prominent in the campaign to end capital punishment in victoria around the time of the hanging of ronald ryan he's one of the few players who takes on norm smith and from the mid-60s, he's just got this conviction that Australian football should be an international game. 
and that that is its proper place in the sporting pantheon. He's worked his whole life towards it. You know, he really is. Uh, I, I, if if you love footy and you want to see it prosper, he's in your Hall of Fame. Well, I think Brian, Brian Dixon ran the article of... We gave Ian Law the credit for the 1967 tour of Ireland and the game against the All-Ireland champions. The Hawthorne rover, Ian Law, was the one that conceived of the idea. He takes it to Harry Beitzel. Harry Beitzel goes to Brian Dixon. Brian Dixon writes it in his column, and the momentum starts from there. But Brian Dixon was very much at the, at the forefront of, of getting that going. Mm-hmm. And then back to Barassi, and you talk about the humility of Barassi in the sense that you know you tried to pin the customary tag on him of being the inventor of handball, 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 1970 oh, yeah. grand final. Oh, yeah. and, and he was unwilling, unwilling to accept that accolade. Unwilling to accept it, mate. We met in a cafe in St Kilda and the big fist, he didn't thump the table and he said... <laughs> I did not invent handball in the 1970 grand final. Len Smith did at Fitzroy in the 1960s. And, you know, you've got, to, you've got to admire a man who's prepared to dispel his own legend, you know. Most, most, of, most of us with egos would go, oh, well, I'll take that. But no, he wasn't having a bar of it. Do you think he was uh, – what sort of a sense of him as a coach do you have? Do you feel like he brutalised his players in a way – that you don't admire, or, or is he an entirely admirable figure for you? Um, I reckon I'd have to say that that's something I don't feel qualified to express an opinion on. I'd need to talk to people who played under him and 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 see what they made of him. I, I know something of what Brent Croswell thinks, but he's he's a total case apart. Yeah. We put up on Speakola, I put up on Speakola some Barassi rants, and they are spectacular, and they are spectacularly brutal. So he really could run through them. I might even play one now, Martin, so people can get a taste of Ron in full flight. Yeah. I think this was Princess yep. Park, 1979. And what do you want? Jerry, you are a I'll tell you why. You've got the bloody football game beaten. You come down here, not concentrated. The ball goes out towards the Carlton small man. You stay back with your man. You could have got to the Carlton small man, but I know I'm going to protect myself. I don't mind a bloke going bad, Daryl, but to me, it's probably the cost you're bloody not switched on properly. Now you get over and try and mind the bloody forward pocket, okay? Stephen, you go to centre-half back, and you go to full back. You weren't anywhere near that bloke. They're playing four yards from him. And he's a good lead, and it comes out from the bloody back line very well. Keith, you've done a typical bloody thing. The ball's gone over. Oh, I couldn't come back near me. You could have run and intercepted that first goal, or second goal, what it was, and you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? That's bloody right. Now, if you both think I'm stirred up, you're bloody right. You're bloody right. If you are bloody fierce in your desire to do it right, you do it. Now, that's not how the bloody forward line do well, and that bloody back line play. This is too big a match, and too much bloody at stake for their bloody be like that. That bloody forward line's playing tremendous. Kevin Bryant, fantastic. 
if we move on to the players that kind of marked your soul, the ones that you remember, the ones that get in this very emotional and, and personal piece, Martin, obviously Robbie Flower is one, and uh, I think he's one that uh, the memory lives with all of us. Well, I, I remember going to a footy match with Paul Kelly, the, the musician, singer-songwriter. His first footy loyalty was to Norwood in, in the Sandfall. And when he came to Melbourne, he, he adopted Melbourne because they had Norwood's colours. Being an Adelaide boy, he subsequently went back to the Crows when they came into the competition. We were on the forward flank near the old race at the G, and um, there was this play in front of us. And, and Robbie Flower got caught in a way that he didn't. And Paul Kelly wrote this very good piece on um, mortality, how it comes to us all, how in that moment he... He'd seen mortality, and 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 um, it was that Robbie Flower got caught. I think if you, if you love footy, it's it's all that Hemingway stuff about you know grace is courage under pressure, or courage is grace under pressure, whichever way it is. But he had such grace, and 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 that's what you know that's what makes footy so great. That's what I love about it is that it's not just graceful it's graceful in dangerous circumstances and Robbie Flower was he was just beautiful to watch and you know he held that club together for a long time in the sort of way that Richo held Richmond together and Nathan Jones later held Melbourne together so really important player in in the Melbourne pantheon and I agree with you entirely on that sense when you see the old player fade and I mean Hopefully he's got another a good year in him next year. But I, I saw it with Pendleby this year. You know, just one of my favourite and most beautiful players. It was just, oh my god, they they caught him. You know, mm. it sort of feels like for sixteen years no one's touched him, and and then suddenly there's yeah. that moment. That's why you, we always need the, the young players coming on because um, they they have to fill these spaces in our in our imaginations. And then there's Sean White. And I think I'm glad you pointed out that he wasn't Irish because I have also mistakenly remembered him as Irish, but Scottish. I think that was his nickname. I think that was what they called him Irish. That was his nickname. <laughs> um, I, 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 you know, a very good footballer, very good, and certainly one of the, if not the most dramatic game I ever saw, was the preliminary final between Melbourne and Hawthorne. That, Mel- that Hawthorne won at the death with the Bacchanara goal yeah. when Jimmy Steins ran across the mark. But that day, uh, Sean White played on Dermot Burton. He played centre-half back on Dermot Burton. Dermot Burton was in his pomp. He was both a great player and physically terrifying. And uh, I remember the moment really early in the game when um, when White marked over him. It was, it was absolutely top-class sport. Yeah, and of course he, um, like Jimmy, died young. So, so that's that's sad. Well, it is sad, and and Melbourne seem to be overrepresented on that front. That these legends, these characters, the people that define the club, they've been really unlucky with some with some early deaths. I and mean, Robbie Flower yeah. as well, and Sean White, yeah. and then Jim Steins, of course, Jim Steins, yeah. and 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 you you flow naturally on from the nineteen eighty seven prelim to talking about the event that defined it and how the man who went across the mark could never outrun that fact. Uh, no, he, uh, he he fled Australia, and he was on in, on the metro in Paris. <laughs> Some guy says to him, aren't you the bloke who ran across the mark? And he realised then he could never escape it, 
and he realised he could only go back and devote his life to being a better player, and in that moment, he believes he won the Brownlow medal. What were your favourite stories of being around Jim in those years of the early 2000s? Well, the ma- there was a sense of magic and wonder because the club was on its knees, where it has been a lot of times, but this one looked real serious. And suddenly this bloke who, who you know, whatever the stereotypes you got about Melbourne, this bloke is completely outside them, if not, you know, a revolutionary, <laughs> you know, in the act of dispelling them. I remember um, attending a Melbourne function and Jimmy comes along, Jimmy gets up and speaks, you know, Jimmy's sort of the, the centre of the show. And as he's leaving, someone says to me, found out today he's got cancer. Uh, and he'd still come uh. and done the business at this function. And um, my, my greatest memory of Jimmy, and it, and it, it touches on Liam Jarrah, um, Jimmy had said he would visit every player on the list. He would go to where they were from and he would, he would, he would see where they were from and he'd meet their people. And so by this stage, he's dying and he heads to you and to me. Yeah. Five hours drive northwest of Alice Springs in the de- on the edge of the Tanami Desert. And um, it's been my good fortune to, to go in and out of quite a few remote Aboriginal communities. There was never an experience like that one. The day that Liam Jarrah who was sort of like the young prince of you and the moo, and Jimmy Steins and the the people of you and the moo, who are most, mostly Walpri people, they knew he was dying and they knew he'd still come. And the reverence, the reverence that surrounded that day, um, it was one of the most, it was one of the times, one of those moments when black Australia and white Australia, Aboriginal Australia, non-Aboriginal Australia, where it's suddenly in balance. Yeah. And um, it, 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 it was one of the most profound experiences. And uh, Jimmy sent me a text later. He read the article and, and he just wrote respect. And, you know, I've got to the age, mate, where um, a lot of, you know, praise doesn't always mean much and not, not as criticism. It's the value of any... Compliment or criticism is in direct proportion to the respect you got for the person making it, and um, how could you not have respect for Jimmy Steins? Absolutely. And did you speak to him in the last weeks and months, Martin? No, Were you a, no. Did you have a last visit sort of thing? No. Oh, that was another day. I met Jimmy. I met him in hospital, and... Um, he was at another stage of his treatment and someone had given him a book on Jesus. <laughs> and the idea was that Jesus hadn't died on the cross. And Jimmy thought this entirely credible. You know, a few, a few nails through your wrists and your ankles, well, that wouldn't kill you. Um, well, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't kill him, I don't reckon. So Jimmy thought this theory entirely plausible. And I wrote it in the age. 
and someone wrote a letter to the age saying how rude it was um, that Christians would have read that. And, but I thought it was a really valuable insight into Jimmy. Absolutely. And then Liam Jarrett, you say it's pretty much your favourite sporting story. Uh, have you got memories of Liam and, and the different pieces that you wrote on him and the places you went with him? Well, if ever, there would be a great movie. I mean, there's so many great movies, but um, we never make them in this country, but anyway. But a movie that starts in Ewan Demoo, you know, music by David Bride in it, big space music he does. This kid who's the hope of the Ewan Demoo footy club. And um, his uh, mate's dying and he brings him to Melbourne because the mate wants to see Collingwood play because you and the Moo are the you and the Moo magpies. And then he, he goes to Collingwood and they put him on a running machine and he jumps off because he thinks it's the earth's shaking. They play him in the VFL side and they go down the next morning to Port Phillip Bay and, and go in for a swim. And... Um, Liam's in the car shaking and <laughs> and uh, the boys go, come on, Liam, come on, Liam. And a fellow called Bruce Hearn McKinnon, who was wonderful to learn, he said to me, um, he may have heard of the sea, but he definitely has never been in it. He's a desert man. <laughs> and uh, I remember I rang up Melbourne at one point to do a story on he and Ozzy, Wanamiri. They were living together. I said, you know, talk about them and, and you know, and the their culture. And the message came back from Melbourne, you know, Ozzy and Liam have don't have the same culture. But Liam's a desert man. Ozzy's a salt water man. Uh, completely different ideas that go with it. So then, you know, him coming and I remember a story, I think it was his second game, Melbourne were playing Carlton at Docklands. And uh <laughs> It's getting closer and closer to the game start and Liam's not there. And so someone says, ring Liam, get out of Liam, ring Liam. And they ring him. And he said, I'm in the rooms, but Carlton's here. So he'd gone back to the rooms they had the week before. <laughs> and at the end of the year, he had to go to the Opera House uh, to be present for some, I think it was the Deadly Awards, the Indigenous Deadly Awards. He didn't know what the Opera House was, never heard of it. So he was this guy from, you know, and when, when he first came, it was unclear how much English he knew, but he was actually pretty bright black, I thought. He, he spoke three or four Aboriginal languages, and I think he understood English a lot better than he let on. But just the, the cultural, the, 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 the width of the cultural gap that he had to leap. And then, of course, all those tragic events that came to pass at Ewan Demu, where there was, there was a stabbing and... The police wouldn't let black law, wouldn't let the issue be resolved by black law, which meant that it proliferated and spread. And um, his tragedy was that he had you know, family on both sides of the dispute. So it was like, it was like, you know, it was Shakespearean. He, um, it, was, it was a tragedy. But um, he did take the AFL Mark of the Year and it was a beauty. And it's well called, if you you can call it up on YouTube. Yeah, I love it. You also love David Bridie. You've, you've given him a mention 
in this chat already and David Bridie's a friend of mine as well. In fact, David Bridie wrote the theme music for this podcast and I believe he's down at Apollo Bay curled up in a ball um, with nerves and terror this week. Um, and unfortunately, I mean, he's, he's attended the footy for years with a group of mates and, and his daughter as well and, and – Hmm. They're not together. I think that's hurting him a lot. But um, yeah. you were thinking about him in 2018. Are you thinking about him in 2021 as well, Martin? Ah, uh, yeah. Well, during the lockdown, he and a group of his mates, male and female, they they get on WhatsApp. It's like a commentary of the game. <laughs> and they got nicknames for all the players. And and uh, I tune in. It's like tuning into the right to a radio to listen to the goon show because uh, they've got yeah it's just it, it's great but I I love his passion for Melbourne and he's so loyal to him and I'm, I'm I'm actually writing a little article on him for the Age this week in my profiles of five Melbourne supporters who don't fit the stereotype he's number four um, yeah. And it is good you seized on this thing because the snow thing annoys me. I'm not even a Melbourne supporter, but the the kind of obsession with this idea that they're all well-to-do and speak with clipped British accents and have been sitting in the second row of the members since 1958 drinking tea and waiting for the next flag. You know, I I don't have that picture of my friends who are Melbourne supporters either. No, but it's such a, you know, it's a... It's like the House of Commons, Melbourne Football Club. It's it's got this it's got this great history, and you've got different personalities, different times. You know, it 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 absolutely is a product of, you know, it's a product of the Melbourne Club, who create the Melbourne Cricket Club, who create the Melbourne Football Club. I mean, so it, it's a product of the Melbourne Club at the time when they are running the colony. So it's it it, it goes. It goes back into a notion of history to do with Melbourne and Victoria that a lot of people wouldn't carry in their consciousness, but Melbourne Football Club does. And then it's got all these characters coming after that. That's that's a lot of what I love about it. I mean, I love Melbourne and I love the way that so many of the great Melbourne stories, like Ned Kelly, the birth of footy, Burke and Wills, how they all link up and connect. That, you know, I love that about Melbourne. And Melbourne Footy Club's in there. And you mentioned one player or two players that are current listed players at Melbourne in 2021, and, and, and they are Nathan Jones and Max Gorn. Yeah. Um, the story for Nathan Jones has changed dramatically from being, the, yeah. I guess, one of the, the central players in 2018 and, and a possible possibility yeah. of, this, of this joy coming his way to now being, you know, I guess, something of a tragic figure as much as he might enjoy this ride. Mm. Yeah, that's it's really it is sad. It is sad that Nathan Jones isn't there because if anyone deserves to be there, he does. Never let it be forgotten that the Melbourne players stood with Adam Goods in 2015 under Nathan Jones' captaincy. And there's a shot where he kicks a goal. Actually, I, I, I had Gil McLaughlin's number. I never used it once. When this photo appeared, I ran and I said, get that photo and um, make sure you use it. It's Nathan Jones. He's kicked a goal and he's holding his wrist up and he's got an Aboriginal band around his wrist and he's, point, he's pointing to it. He's, po- he's saluting it. And because Neville Jetter, isn't it? He was one of the people behind that. Neville Jetter's a really impressive man. Little man with a big aura, Neville. 
And um, he was one of the, the movers behind that and the players all were solid because that's one of the things that bothers me about the Adam Good story is that, um, you know, it's assumed that all clubs, all players, all supporters were on one side, but they weren't. It was It was a much more varied phenomenon than that. So, yeah, Nathan Jones, um, you know, I, I think he's a much-loved figure at, at, at Melbourne. And I always say to Bob Murphy, you know, he, he missed the grand final and, and I think he still feels that. But 30 years' time, he'll go back <clears throat> to the Western Bulldogs. You know, he'll be remembered and uh, fated, uh, whereas some of the guys at the Premiership team will be forgotten. And, and Nathan Jones won't be forgotten by by Melbourne supporters. Um, Maxie Gorn, I think he's a really interesting fella. I think uh, people don't put enough emphasis on the fact that he's a New Zealander. I think he might have been born here, but his parents are from New Zealand. And um, they came here and went back to New Zealand, and then they came back here. I'm not, I can't keep up. I'm not in command of the details of the story, but I'm pretty sure he backs for New Zealand in cricket. And what I see in Max Gorn is a bloke who plays football like the All Blacks play rugby. You know, New Zealand is an astonishing country. Um, I'm a great admirer. And in, in sport, they, they, they hit above their weight. And the All Blacks are one of the great sporting units of the world. And uh, they play rugby without complaint and without remorse. And um, Max Gorn has brought that grit to Melbourne Footy Club. And I, I I might be boasting here and I might be wrong, but I think I was the first person to say that he should be captain of Melbourne and that he could bring to that club what Bob Murphy brought to the dogs. And I remember I, I did an interview with him early on and he uh, I asked him something about Nathan Jones and he said, um, and he said as a joke, oh, when I came to the club, I thought he was a selfish player. And I said, do you, do you want that in the article? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> and I said, well, you ought, to, you ought to think about it because it could be taken out of context and used against Nathan Jones, which could then be a problem for you. Anyway, a couple of days later, he rang back and he said, yeah, I see what you mean. And whenever I've met him subsequently, you know, I, I find him a man who uh, I think he knows a lot about respect. Uh, I think he knows how to give it and I think he knows how to get it. He was anointed by Jimmy. Jimmy picked him early as being someone who, who, who could really bring something special to the Melbourne Footy Club. And he's a smart guy. And I, I remember one thing he said to me was, um, you know, I'm not typical of AFL culture. And I thought he meant that he's from New Zealand. He said, no. Uh, he said, I went to a government school, which is an un unacknowledged aspect of AFL culture. It's... AFL footy is, is largely very, you know, almost exclusively now a private schoolboy game. Uh, but he stands outside that as well. The reason for that, Martin, is the reason for that is that so many kids at government schools are spotted and brought within the private school system for the glory of the private school. I don't think a lot of the, the schools play it anymore. A lot of the high schools don't, don't play it anymore. That's why I've been trying to say for some years, that if the AFL lets clubs die, as is happening down here in Tasmania, the next Dusty Martin, if they're not playing at, at his school and there's no local club, what's he do? He does something else. Yeah. 
that's why the, the, the AFL, I think, needs a whole new vision about the future of the game. You've, we spent a, rightfully a long time on Melbourne because this speech is dedicated to the D's and the glory of Melbourne. But you did write the book about the Western Bulldogs as well, A Wink from the Universe. There are so many players that are running out there on Saturday who feature in that book and that you would have spent hours with getting their stories right for the chapters that dedicate to them. What are the, Who are the ones that you're thinking about? If you were writing and thinking about you Western Bulldogs, who are you thinking about? Well, I've done a series of podcasts for The Age on telling stories about the Bulldogs and readings from A Wink from the Universe. The first one with did was on Libba, the football anarchist, a really interesting character, a formidable footballer, I've been a journalist for 40 years, mate. The day I interviewed Lib unbeknownst to me, one of the buttons on my shirt was undone. In the middle of the interview, he leaned over, put his hand in and pulled the hairs on my chest. That has only ever happened to me once. <laughs> I've never had my space invaded by the subject of an interview, but he did. He's obviously a, he's obviously a strange. I mean, he's even his tattoo choices where he's got Homer Simpson on one arm, you know, the the defining character of the show, and then on the other arm he's gone with the pimply guy who works in the servo, like a guy who's in twelve at four episodes. It's just a, a strange choice to do as your second Simpsons tat. It's very bizarre. <laughs> and on the inside, on the inside of his left arm, he's got Hunter S. Thompson. When the going gets weird, the tough turn pro. I think he's tattered on the inside as well. But, you know, he's a, he's a fantastic character and he's obviously going to be a huge figure in this game because I imagine they will use him to try and take out either Petraka or Oliver. So really important player. Tory Dixon's said to be about him. Uh, the paradox of Liver is that he doesn't care what people think. But at the same time, he's very loyal to people. Yeah. And that, that's all true. He's Irish-Italian, so is Bonte. And uh, Libba said to me, bad mixture. <laughs> and, uh, I remember when I interviewed him, I said, uh, he was telling me he hates Geelong. They're arrogant. They're arrogant. And I said, what about GWS? Are they arrogant too? Yes, they're arrogant too. <laughs> Do you hate them? Yes, I hate them. And then he goes, do I believe anything I say? <laughs> he's a football dissident, you know. He 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 breaks all the. He doesn't abide by any of the norms, but you know, his third quarter in the 2016 Grand Final was phenomenal. Yeah, you know, uh, Josh Kennedy's nearly rested the game for Sydney in the in the second quarter, and they put Libba on him, and you know that there's a period of the game. Dennis Cometti calls it something like no effective contact. I mean, the pressure is so great, the ball is just squirming around the middle. Lib is the only one who gets it. And he sets up a goal, takes Kennedy out of it, and then the dogs are being outmarked in the forward line and by the end of the quarter, he's down the forward line on Rampy. I mean, just an epic quarter. And, you know, if third quarters are when grand finals are won, well, who stepped up and was a mighty player for them? So that was the, my first one. Uh, my second one was Bonty. Everyone loves Bonty. Bonty's a beautiful, you know, he's the prince of uh, of Whitten Oval. He's this, I think the most interesting quote about him that year was when he went to the Brownlow and a journalist said to his mother, your son is so mature. And she basically said, you know, is he? He's, he's just what he's always been. That's Marcus. Yeah. And, and there's, there's something of that about him. And the first time I met him, 
we were in the cafeteria at Witten Oval and these two women came up with a baby and they plonked the baby on his knee and said his father is a bulldog supporter, you know, he'd love to, love to get a photo. And I took a photo of them taking the photo. I don't take many photos, best photo I ever took. <laughs> and, 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 and when they were gone, he said to me, he was only 20, he said, I don't see what playing football has got to do with babies. And uh, anyway, I put the photo out on Twitter. Within 40 minutes, the mother of the baby, whose name is Jasper Listro with two eyes, she has posted one of this little kid standing there in a bulldog guernsey, flexing his muscles with badges <laughs> of body on him. And, uh, and that's what babies and playing games of, of footy have got to do with one another. So he's a wonderful character. Felt for him the other night with the Brownlow. I thought he would have been a deserving winner. And then the next one I did was Eastern Wood. I think, I think it, you know, the, the, that 2016 flag, it's, it's, it's a magnificent story because there are so many components to it. But Eastern Wood's, his performance, what he, got, what he did, what he gave, what he found within himself, you know, when he took over the team, um, he, he, you know, he, he'd never thought it the possibility that he would... He was vice-captain and he thought he might have to lead him once or twice, but the idea that he would have to take over the helm of the boat from round three and then just before the finals, he, you know, he, he was... He, he doesn't do it nearly as much now, but back then he was such a beautiful leap, so, so balletic in the air... And he came down off the top of a pack and, and did his ankle. And I saw a photograph of the ankle like it's this black-grey mash, this lump running about 12 centimetres down the side, toes like purple jelly beans. You know, they, they, and, and he, he comes back. He makes it back for the first final, gets injured again, comes back out onto the field, and then he plays that amazing game in the preliminary final where he takes about six beautiful marks early and he sets the dogs up for the game. And then they come into the grand final and he's, he's, his ankle's cooked. He knows he's got six leaps. He can make six leaps. He's going to have, have to decide when he uses his six leaps. And there are some amazing moments in the match that he's in. There's a big pack early, comes over the back. He uses one of his leaps to smash it away. He collects Kieran Jack early. And, and, and the power of the collision is such that Jack's body spins through the air like he's been hit by a car. And there's a moment late where Buddy's on the lead and, 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 and Easterbrook gets caught in front of him. And it's like watching someone be trampled by a horse, but he grabs Buddy in passing and pulls him down. Like He, he was so brave, so good. And, yeah, like I've, I've, I've got a lot of, lot, of, lot of time for him. So uh, apart from him, mate, um, I've done one on... Other stories in the book that are among my favourite stories, which are mostly to do with supporters. And uh, after that, mate, it leaves you come back to Bevo. I mean, Bob's Bob Murphy's a huge figure, obviously, in that year. Um, but of the people who are still there, you come back to Bevo, mate. And if I have one story about Bevo, it's one of Bob Murphy's stories. <laughs> when they have their first team meeting, after they've won the flag, they walk in. And Bevo's written a quote from Dr Seuss up on the whiteboard. <laughs> You have to be odd to be number one. <laughs> That's the <laughs> And he is. He's odd. 
I've heard stories that he, you know, that the idea of him just sort of skateboarding along sets him apart yeah. from the other coaches. And and another one yeah. that Bob Murphy told me was that he 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 would sometimes just say a joke. He said, "I want to break the mood in here today." You know, what's what's a pirate's favourite yeah. letter? You know, and you want to say they all volunteer R, of course. And uh, and Bevo says, "No, you think it's R, but it's actually the C." And uh, <laughs> it's just, and and Bob Murphy's saying it's just a strange thing to do to tell quite a bad joke to a group of uh, young men, but just to sort of get the mood going. I recently wrote a piece for Footyology on um, seven blokes I knew that I played footy with in the nineteen seventies. One of them, Gordon Cuff, got arrested. He and his wife Susie Orlick they chained themselves to a gate uh, on the edge of the Tarkine Wilderness to stop construction on a tailings dam that is being built down there in the wilderness. So six of us went down after that. Anyway, the, the part of the point of the story was uh, we took a footy with us and we, we, we had to get past two gates with security guards. And at both gates, the security guards went for the ball, mate. That was the, that was the amazing <laughs> thing. They didn't go for the man, they went for the ball and we got through. But, but the police eventually apprehended us. But uh, but Bevo, one of the things about Bevo, I mean, he's, he's a man of many parts, but one of the things is um, he's a surfer. He's in touch with the natural world in a big way. And um, I remember Bob and he and I did a function at uh, the Sun Theatre in Yarraville after the book on the 2016 grand final came out. And Bevo got there late and he got up on the stage and, whoever was coordinating it or hosting it, handed him the microphone. <laughs> and his statement was, the last Rhodesian white rhinoceros died this morning. And he just hand back, handed back the phone. And I, I've, I've spoken to him quite a bit about environmental stuff. And so I sent him this article about us going down and what happened and Gordon Cuff, Gordy, the, the first guy, he's a big Melbourne supporter. <laughs> and Bevo wrote back to me and said, that's inspirational. And uh, I'd said to, I said to Gordy, mate, you've, you've inspired the coach of, of the Western Bulldogs on the edge, <laughs> on the edge of a grand fire. You've got to think about the consequences of your actions now. <laughs> uh, did you end up doing jail time? Martin, did you do a night in the lockup? No, we were. The police were very good. They'd heard that there was a Sharon at loose in the Tarkine, and uh, one of the cops turned up. It was the night after the State of Origin. He turned up in a New South Wales, the Blues scarf. So, no, they apprehended us. They read out an order that uh, if we came back there or within quite an area around it. Within the next two weeks, we'd be arrested, uh, and then they transported us out of the area. Yeah, so that that that's what happened. Well, I thought I'd finish with um, the football world. Will be thinking about Neil Danaher as well uh, over these next few days. Yeah. And uh, if you were probably writing the piece now, you'd you'd have a, a paragraph on Neil. Um, oh. And well, yeah, that's funny, mate. I don't remember any of the things that are in that in that speech. So I can't remember. Oh, it occurred to me about halfway through. I might be repeating myself here. But anyway, 
um, Neil Danaher. I look at Neil Danaher and I think of some of the really poor leaders we've got in the Western world now. Uh, you know, Trump, Johnson, Morrison, Barnaby Joyce. Then you look at a bloke like Neil Danaher, who's this beacon of humanity, you know, like of, of courage and um, inspiring people, you know, powering to the line with this terrible debilitating illness. To me, he grows in stature day by day. Uh, he's going to be another giant like Jimmy. Like um, he's, uh, he's a really significant figure in the culture of Australian football and that makes him a really significant figure in the AFL, in what is now called the AFL States. Absolutely. And, and you finished the piece with a, a salute back to Jimmy, thinking of the, the scarf that had been draped around his grave. And, and I saw on Twitter today that it's happened again. A Melbourne jumper has been oh. put on the grave of Jim Stein. Wow. So it's, it's, a, it's a great image. Wow. And, uh, and it's a great speech, man. Thank you so much for letting us talk about it. No, mate. Always a pleasure to do business with you. Can I say that maybe our listening audience is more has a lot of Richard Flanagan fans in it? Oh um, yeah, Richard, Richard, your brother. Who would he be yep. barracking for on Saturday? Does he have a football bone in his body? Ah, uh, mate. Well, these are these are profoundly interesting questions. <laughs> um, I was once asked by the the literary editor of a newspaper how I would describe my brother, and I said. The Dermot Brereton of Australian literature. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, his, his capacity to get up off the deck and, and bat, fight on, he's, he's phenomenal. So as far as footy goes, my dear old dad was from a little town called Cleveland. If you drive from Launceston Hobart, you'll go through Cleveland. My grandfather was the president of the... Cleveland Footy Club, and they played in Joe Pike's paddock, which is the paddock you pass on the left. But when my dad was growing up, Cleveland had the memory of a of a champion, George. I'm going to kill myself when I get off this because oh, I can't remember his second name. He yeah, he was a maths teacher at Launceston Grammar. He played in there was a national carnival in 1913, and he was Tasmania's best. Carlton recruited him. He was Carlton's best in the 1914 or 15 grand final, maybe 15, and he's blown apart in France the year after. I've got it. George Chalice, 1915 grand final, best for Carlton. Um, but he's buried in Cleveland. Dad grew up in the memory of a champion. So Richard was interested in Carlton for that reason. But he he subsequently... Uh, like other people I know, was became disenchanted <laughs> with some of the politics of the Carlton Football Club. So he has floated a bit since then. He professes not to be interested in football but always rings me for a talk uh, coming into the grand final, often watches it with Brent Croswell. He only lacked one thing to be a great footballer, my brother, uh, and that was ability. He had the rest. <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was, he was, he's a tough man, He's you know, and he could be a hard man. Uh, ambition, he would have been able to do what, do what it took. He, so he, whereas my formative years were spent playing oh, yeah. cricket and being absorbed oh, yeah. into that culture, 
His yeah. formative years were spent in the southwest in canoes, going down wild rivers. Uh, oh, so yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's sort of a difference between us. Well, one thing that's definitely true of the Flanagan brothers, that you're wonderful with words. Uh, you've got some great speeches. There's one called Why I Write that I put up on Speak Ola, which talks about your parents. I absolutely love that speech. It's a it's a beauty. Look that one up. Uh, there's one you gave at the opening of the legal year that's an excellent speech. That's, that's on Speak Ola as well. But for footy fans, this one is a must. Thanks so much, Martin, for coming on. And I'll be thinking of you. Midway through the third quarter, as you're being torn gradually in two. Yeah, that's this is this is it. This is entirely it. But no, thank you, thank you for speak Ola. Uh, because if it wasn't for you, all those pieces would have no life after the after the moment they left my mouth. So thank you very much. Cheers, Martin. See ya. Ready, set, go. Well, from the outset, we've had a terrific supporter at Speakola, and that supporter, Jack, my 10-year-old son, is... Green skin and purple skin avocado. They are the great avocado grower in this country, and you can rely on them with a sense of certainty to produce an avocado that is blemish-free when you cut through into that perfect centre. They've also got a new avocado, Jack. They've reinvented the avocado with the G-Max. What is the G-Max? Well, the G-Max is like other avocados, but it has a smaller pip, which means more avocado. And it also blooms late into the season. The idea being that we get to a point one day where the avocado is just perfect all year round. Find out more, Jack, at their website, which is... Greenskinandpurpleskinavocados.com.au Or check them out on... Facebook and Instagram. Good job, Jack. Well, it's time for the speech of the week. We've talked about it for the whole episode. It's one of my favourites. It aired three years ago this week, on the 20th of September 2018, on SEN Radio, on Andy Marr's afternoon show. It was a bit of a sensation. It got shared around footy fans across Australia. And in fact, I put up a couple of speeches on Speak Older that are parodies of this. Comedian Matt Quartermain has done thinking about you pieces at the Footy Almanac lunch over the last couple of years. And they're always very funny. And I put them up on Speak Older as well. However, they're seeking laughs. This is seeking some sort of deeper spiritual connection with the great game of Australian rules football. Thinking about you, Tom Wills, and how it started with you 160 years ago. The oldest football club in the world still playing in the elite competition of its code. Thinking about you, Ivor Warren Smith, the best player my grandfather, a working man, ever saw. That was in the early 1920s. You were playing with the Trobe in Tassie. Later, you won two Brownlows with Melbourne. Still later, as chairman of selectors, you were the steady hand behind the volatile Norm Smith as Melbourne powered to six premierships. Thinking about you, Rumbarassi, how you were brought up by Norm Smith after your father, a Melbourne premiership player, was killed in action during World War II. You were the game's great moderniser. And after you left Melbourne for Carlton in 1965, 
the D's never won another. Thinking about you, Brian Dixon, how you played on the wing in five Melbourne premierships and then spent the next 50 years working to make Australian football an international game. How you were dismissed as an eccentric, just like Tom Wills was. Thinking about you, Ron Barassi, about me interviewing you and raising the oft-told footy legend that you invented handball as an offensive weapon at half-time in the 1970 grand final and you smashing the table with your big fist and crying out, that is not true. Len Smith invented handball at Fitzroy in the 1960s. Part of what made you great was that you had a blazing inner truthfulness. Thinking about you, Robbie Flower, and going to the footy late in your career with Paul Kelly, and seeing you get caught with the ball. Robbie Flower never got caught with the ball. And Paul Kelly writing a piece on mortality and how the end comes to us all. Thinking about you, Sean White, wrongly called Irish by the Melbourne fans when you were actually Scottish. Thinking about your epic clash with Dermot Burton in the 1987 preliminary final. Of the mark you took over Burton in the first quarter. Of the headlock you slapped on him when he got nasty. Thinking about you, Jimmy, running across the mark in that game and the morgue-like silence that followed Buccanara's goal that gave Hawthorne victory after Melbourne had led most of the day. Thinking how you told me you fled to Paris and on the metro a man leant forward and said, aren't you the bloke who ran across the mark in the preliminary final? And you knew you could never escape it. You'd have to go back and you'd have to do better than you'd ever dreamed of doing to atone for your error. Four years later you won the Brownlow. You told me you won the Brownlow because you ran across the mark. That's how your mind worked, Jimmy. Obstacle equals opportunity. Thinking about you, Jimmy, when you were dying. Going to you and the Moo and the Walpree tribal lands five hours northwest of Alice Springs. Because Liam Jarrah came from you and the Moo and as club president, you told the Melbourne players you want to see the place every one of them was from. Everyone knew you were dying. The Walpree were in awe of your act and I saw how white fellows can pass into the dreaming of this land. Thinking about you, Liam Jarrah, taking the 2010 mark of the year, tumbling over the top of a pack in Adelaide. Up so high you took it on the way down as you fell headfirst to the ground and the commentator crying that one name, that one word, so that it reverberated around Australia. Jarrah! Thinking about the night in the long room at the MCG when Liam Jarrah's grandmother, who had come down from Ewan Demu, addressed a club function in Walpri. Her language. Thinking about Liam telling me that once when he had an injury, his grandmother and some other Walpri women elders sang it away. Thinking about just how low Melbourne were at the time when Jimmy came back as president. Thinking about their courageous captain James MacDonald, a slight man who seldom spoke, but could knock you into next week with his hip and shoulder. Thinking about you, Andrew Mammonitis. The Ds were yet again in serious debt and struggling for sponsors, and Andrew Mammonitis was in a Kazakhstan restaurant in Moscow, attending a meeting being run by the Russian internet company Kaspersky and a senior executive with the oriental name of Harry Chung invited ideas from the floor. And Andrew Mammonitis made a pitch on behalf of a club playing a game no one had heard of, saying it was a way for Kaspersky to enter the Australian market. 
and Harry Chung got Kaspersky's Asian representative, a Swede called Pavel Turid, to ring the club and the club put Pavel Turid through to membership inquiries. But Pavel Turid persisted and eight days after Andrew Mamonitis made his pitch, Harry Chung flew to Melbourne and clinched the deal. Thinking about my friend David Bridie, about his steadfast support of the Melbourne Football Club and the people of West Papua, and how I know this side of the grave you'll never give up on either. Thinking about his daughters Winnie and Stella, feminist demons. Thinking about the woman in the cheer squad I sat behind and the kindness she showed the young man with the intellectual disability she was sitting with. Thinking about her offering me biscuits and a cup of tea. Thinking about the Melbourne woman supporter I know who was taken from a mother at birth and adopted out. All she knew about her past was that she came from Melbourne, so Melbourne became her team and in no one does the heart beat more true for the red and the blue than it does in Penny Mackerson. Thinking about you, Arthur Wilkinson, the Melbourne doorman who came to the club as a friend of Checky Hughes and was still there in 2008. As a youth, Arthur carried his swag out back and worked in the bush. All he carried with him was one set of clothes and a book of poetry. At his funeral, his son Mark said, My father loved three things, the bush, my mother and the Melbourne Football Club. Thinking about you, Mark Wilkinson, your father's successor as Melbourne doorman, standing alongside Barry King. Thinking about you, Nathan Jones, and the joy in seeing a young player grow like a tree and become a champion. Thinking about you, Neville Jetta, and a session I sat in on with you and Jeff Garlett ran, introducing your teammates to Aboriginal culture, and afterwards your teammates all saying, why weren't we taught this at school? Thinking about the match in 2015, when the Melbourne team wore wristbands and the colours of the Aboriginal flag as a gesture of solidarity with Adam Goods. Thinking about a day last year when Melbourne brought back Liam Jarrah, Aaron Davey and Ozawan Amira to launch their Reconciliation Action Plan, and they're standing with Neville Jetta when Nathan Jones enters the room and the sound like a joyful clap of thunder as five men embraced. Thinking about you, Big Max Gorn, how Jim Stein spotted you early, saying you brought something special to the club. You like Jimmy being an outsider, Jimmy an Irishman, you from a Kiwi background, bringing all black grit to the team. Thinking about the book I wrote on the Bulldogs and the injection they got from having fresh players return at the start of the finals and then seeing how young Jack Viney is playing. Thinking about the Melbourne team and how strong and settled it looks. Thinking about a photo I saw on Twitter of the spot in the Dublin Mountains where Jimmy's ashes were scattered. Seeing a boulder with a plaque bearing his name and draped over it, a Melbourne scarf, the red and the blue. It made me want to shout. You're still here, Jimmy. Go D's. End of episode, people. Thank you so much for tuning in to this grand final edition of the Speak Ola podcast. And thinking about you, Melbourne supporters, and thinking about you, Western Bulldogs supporters, I do love this time of the year. And if you are a footy fan and this is the first time you've come across the podcast, do spread the word. Bit of word of mouth is actually the best thing a podcast can have. And it may be that you like episode two of this podcast as well, which features the Alan Jeans Pay the Price speech. 
that episode is actually a bit different to other episodes of the podcast. It doesn't follow the format of one single interview and then the speech. In that case, it's the various audio grabs I took while researching my book, 1989, The Great Grand Final. And you can buy that book. I think there are still copies online through Hardy Grant or you can contact me directly, tony at tonywilson.com.au and it's $35 anywhere in Australia. A big thank you to you, Martin Flanagan, one of my writing heroes. I've been reading Martin ever since I was a kid and it's a real thrill to have become friends with him in later life as I've gone down this sports writing road a little myself. Martin said it in his piece, but I'm thinking of you too, David Bridie, composer of our theme music. You know him as the front man of Not Drowning Waving or My Friend the Chocolate Cake, but I know him as the curled up mess who will not be coping with the nerves of a Melbourne Grand Final. Best of luck. It's tough on fans to not be able to see this one in person. Thank you to the show's sponsors, the podcast reader, podread.org forward slash speakola. If you want to redeem a three-month free subscription to the PDF edition of the magazine, and thank you, as always, to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados, greenskinavocados.com.au. Thanks to the Patreon subscribers. I think we're up to 31. I'm aiming for 50, only because I've been raised on cricket and I see the world in half centuries and centuries. And thank you to you, Earthquake. You didn't damage too much stuff. You didn't kill anyone. And for a full day, we all talked about something other than the lockdown. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your grand final days. Until next time.